I'm James. She's Chrissy. This is Toy Hall of Fame inaugural class part two. Let's get it on. Yeah, considering we have nine, we have nine this round. <laughs> I don't know how much we did last time. I think it was. Well, let, let's not worry about that. <laughs> let's not worry about it. All right. So where do you want to start? Let's start. Let's start with the Radio Flyer Wagon. Ooh. Oh, Radio Flyer. It's a pretty simple concept, the the wagon. I mean, there have been wagons since there's been the need to transport goods. Mm-hmm. But really, the, the toy wagon um, really didn't really take off until about 19, uh, 1917 in Chicago, Illinois, when Antonio Passan actually created it. Um, and started selling them to area shops. So, oh, wagons. He, he mostly was known for making phonographic, um, well, phonogra- phonograph cabinets. And he kind of built the small wagons to carry the tools around. And then a lot of children wanted, a lot of people wanted to buy the wagons. I think for use in the home, but also, you know, kids. You know, because they're easy to carry kids around. So his business grew until the Liberty Coaster Company, named in honor of the Statue of Liberty, was formed in 1923. And they were called Liberty Coasters. Eventually, after a few more name change, it was named Radio Steel and Manufacturing and then became Radio Flyer. So the Mm -hmm. Radio Flyer Red Wagon. Interestingly enough, Antonio... In 1933, when the Chicago World's Fair was there for Century of Progress, and they were asked to be part of the celebration, he actually took out a couple of loans to fund the construction of a 45-foot-tall wood and plaster coaster boy statue depicting a boy riding in one of the wagons. And then he sold miniatures of them for 25 cents. Okay. Yeah. You know, since then, the Radio Flyer has basically been the toy wagon. I mean, it, it is the one that pops into our head when we think of a wagon for a kid. We've seen it in, of course, the 1983 film A Christmas Story. It's the toy that will not put your eye out. Nope. And also, I think, I mean, kids everywhere, you these wagons could be used for almost anything. You could pretend it was a car, a spaceship, you know. It was the easiest way of moving, you know, your younger siblings and cousins from the house to the to the ice cream shop and then back to the house again before their parents realized that that is where you all went. <laughs> Not that I ever did that. And of course, if we're going to play it as use it as a car, it's the easiest way to play taxi. Pretty much. But as far as video games go, while I can't think of any games that include a a red wagon in and of itself, there was or it maybe still is a company called Red Wagon Games. Oh, fair. actually, I wanted to, I want to say the Red Wagon used to pop up in um, Paperboy as one of your obstacles. Oh, that's right. That's right. Not in the newer versions, but in the older version, the one that we played back in the eighties. I re- think I I remember it was one of the obstacles. The other cool thing with the wagon, too, not more video games, but games itself, was if you got a couple of these puppies together and you got someone willing to push you, we used to drag race. Mm. The interesting thing with Radio Steel and Radio Flyer is it's actually number one in our country for small, for best small business in which to work for. Uh, it was actually put up in the, it was number one, in the top 25 back in 2015 by fortune. It is considered a small business and it is still family run with the current CEO is actually Antonio's grandson, Robert. And they don't just make wagons anymore. They make scooters, tricycles, horses, caterpillars. right? Yep. Caterpillars. Well, the, technically the inchworm is what they call it. Yeah. Close enough. And a lot of different vehicles for kids to use. So, good on them. And just real quick, back to Red Wagon Games, which has no association with Radio Flyer. To give you an idea of the kind of stuff they made, one of their biggest licenses was the 1960s Rankin-Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cartoon. (laughs) Yeah, these guys were a shovelware company. Hey, what can you do? You know, everybody starts somewhere, and they probably had bigger ambitions that 
didn't pan out. No, never. That's very true. So, interestingly enough, for the 80th anniversary of the Worlds of the, the Wagon, Radio Flyer actually had commissioned a statue called the World's Largest Wagon. It was a sculpture they commissioned, and it was nine times the size of the Little Red Wagon and weighed about 15,000 pounds. And that was actually the same year as the Radio Flyer making it into the Toy Hall of Fame. What a coinkydink. Hmm. And hey, let's keep things rolling, in a sense, going mm-hmm. from the wagon to roller skates. Ah, roller skates. That was my other favorite toy growing up. Hmm. Well, the first reported use of wheeled skates was on a London stage in 1743, according to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. The first patented roller skate was introduced in 1760 by Belgian inventor John Joseph Merlin. That might be the easiest Belgian name I've ever had to pronounce. John Joseph Jingleheimer Smith? No, sorry. <laughs> that probably will only be the easiest Belgian name we'll ever have in the series. The only downside to these things was they were very hard to steal and very hard to stop because they didn't have any braking mechanism. And as such, these original roller skates did not take off very well. Yeah, eventually brakes would be added and, and little keys, which would, of course, inspire the Melanie song with its subtle sexual innuendo. Now, do you know what actually led to the roller skate actually taking off was? Do tell. There was actually an opera called Les Profetés back in the 1840s, and they actually used the roller skates to simulate ice skating on a frozen pond on the stage. It had such an impact on the audience that roller skating actually started to become a hobby. Okay. It also led to, as ice skaters began to develop the art of figure skating, roller skaters actually were able to do a very similar thing. And then in 1863, now remember at this time, I don't think you realize this, James, because um, we don't really see it. So the four, so the quad style of roller skate with literally two in the front, two in the back, that actually didn't get really developed until 1863. The original roller skates were in a line. Okay. Like rollerblades. Yeah. So rollerblades weren't quite as novel as we thought they were back in the 90s. Nope. They just went out of style because it was found that with the quad development, it was a more stable skate. And literally, they were finding they were easier to steer and easier to stop. So um, this was actually, and that was actually created by James Pimpleton, in Massachusetts. The Pimpleton design is what you now know of as roller skates today. And it's been the basis for a variety of sports and games. Of course, you know, speed skating, basic racing, inline figure skating, and of course it's been used in roller hockey, jam skating, and roller derby. Yep. And actually, roller hockey became such a popular game that it actually made an appearance in the Olympics in, 19, in 1992. That makes sense. Our convention has a connection to roller derby, actually, with the Rock City Rollers, I think they are? Yeah, let me look it up. But we do have a roller derby hockey team, a roller derby team here in Rochester. I actually had a friend who was um, actually was their coach and was their trainer. Um, Rochester Roller Derby, because there's a couple of different ones up here. So Rochester Roller Derby is is actually the name of the crew up here. They are actually uh, established in 2008, and they're uh, Rochester, New York's first flat track roller derby league. Um, They're part of the flat track lead. I don't think we, they, I can't find the name. So Bob, there's a couple of them. There's a junior roller derby. There's a men's roller derby. I think it's just called Rock City Roller Derby. I don't know what the name of the teams are. Whatever the case, they're part of the FC3 family. So rock stars. So there kudos to them. <laughs> so, yeah. And if anyone ever gets a chance to go see a roller derby event, go see a roller derby event. It's a lot of fun, actually. And of course, roller skates are a common video game power up. If in a, in a realistic modern setting game, you're looking for an item to represent a speed boost. Roller skates. Mm hmm. Also interesting, too, is roller skates actually, during the pandemic, actually exploded during the pandemic because people were looking for things to do outside and roller skating became one of them. 
especially with TikTok and people doing tricks to the point that many popular brands are still on back order. Yeah, we can blame the current supply chain woes for that. And also people looking for them. What's interesting, though, is actually one of my favorite movies is based around roller skating. And that's uh, Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. It was the last movie Gene Kelly actually starred in and did the dance for because it takes place around a roller rink. Yeah, Electric Light Orchestra did a lot of the music for that. Freaking love Electric Light Orchestra. That was actually some of the things I used to... When I used to have my roller skates on and I used to have my little radio, that was actually what I used to blast out of there was Electric Light Orchestra when I could. Now, Chrissy, speaking of movies of that era, Mm -hmm. I have a question for you. Yes. May I have 10,000 marbles, please? Uh, I... That's an Animal House reference. I know, and I'm thinking to myself, do I have 10,000 marbles that I could throw at you right now for that reference? Oh, dear. Oh, marbles. Something that we claim that we've lost. Here's another toy that's been around for centuries upon centuries. Pretty much since 2500 BCE. And no one really knows where they kind of started from. They just kind of were there. They were found in the Indus Valley uh, region, which is also known as the Cradle of Life or Mesopotamia. And a lot of those places are. They've been mentioned in Roman literature. And in that one, they were actually what marbles were walnuts. They've been found in ancient Egypt. They arrived um, to Br- to Britain during the medieval era. There is a town <laughs> that in Nuremberg, Germany, in 1503, where it was such an epidemic of people playing marbles that they actually had to limit it to a meadow outside of town because no one was getting anything done. I'm actually looking at the name, the types of marbles, and this list. Good heavens. Oh, yeah. If it can become a small little stone, it can become a marble. You know, there's there's actually like marble championships. There's a whole terminology to the game of marbles. It is a game um, that you can actually play. I never was good at it. It's not really known when they were actually first like mainly like massively manufactured. It definitely was something that was kind of like, you know, obviously something an artisan would do to get it that perfect round and polished. But a German glass blower, name is lost to time, actually created marble scissors, which was a device for making marbles in 1846. And ceramic marbles, pretty, entered a pretty uh, inexpensive mass production in 1870s. And marbles is not just discussing the actual marbles itself. Like we said, it's also a game. Yes. It is. What's the stereotypical schoolyard game for just a couple of boys looking to pass some time? Draw a circle with some chalk, put some marbles in there, see whose marble is left standing after everybody shoots them around a bit. Yeah, and marbles have used and been used in a variety of games. In board games, it's been used in aggravation, which is a big one at my house. Chinese checkers is a popular one. Mm-hmm. You can't play Hungry Hungry Hippos without marbles. Or Kerplunk. Oh, my sister and I used to love Kerplunk. And then my favorite was always the rolling marble sculptures where you would have you would put the marble atop and watch it kind of go through like a Rube Goldberg device. There was the one that was outside of Sears for the longest time. I, I miss that machine. Someone actually has it. Like there, uh, someone actually saved that that machine. It's hiding in someone's garage somewhere. They did a they did a story on it like a couple years ago and he was going to sell it for $1000 because he it would take he did not have the time to fix it and oh my god, if you do not think I was trying to figure out how to get the money to buy that machine to fix mm-hmm. it. You don't know me because he still has it too. I don't think he ever got rid of it. He hasn't found a buyer yet. And of course, marbles also pop up quite a bit in video games, but the one I definitely want to focus on is Marble Madness. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. That was the post-Atari breakup trackball game. The one we did not cover on our Atari trackball games episode. Mostly because Marble Madness itself really needs to be its own episode. To be sure. And we will eventually discuss it. I loved Marble Madness. I used to have it on my NES. And it was one of those games where at first I didn't quite understand when you started off, it asks you what degree you want. It took me a very long time because by the time I got it for my NES, it did not have the player's guide anymore, the manual. 
So I didn't understand when it was asking, I think it was like, what, 45 degrees and 33 degrees. I did not know what it was asking about. So I always kind of went with 33 degrees and prayed for the best. But did you realize that a lot of the design in that game was actually inspired by the artwork of MC Escher? I believe it. Uh, same guy who helped design the alien, who inspired the aliens design in the aliens movies. Yeah, it was actually the original video game was defined by Mark Cerny, and it was published by Atari Games in 1984. It is a and it, it they I love how they don't call it a trackball. It's a, it is a trackball game, but they said its actual genre is a platformer. Um, Chrissy, I think you're confusing MC Escher with someone else. No, MC Escher. That's what it says here. But he didn't design the alien. That's that's H.R. Oh, Geiger. You're right. My apologies. You can at me on that one. Thank you. You're right. It is Geiger. Audience, you are allowed to at me for that one. Okay. I deserve that. It's that. all right. It's, if I had a dollar for every mistake I've made on this podcast, I could order you a sheet pizza with triple pepperoni. Mm, I already fell in love with the double pepperoni. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I have to say this much for Mar for Marble Madness. Like this is a, it's actually a really good game to teach physics with. Okay, yes. I yes. found a way to bring education into this one. Just because the it is the the a lot of that game is based off of physics. I mean, just kind of looking at at some of the design that they did and like, wow, this is a lot of this is actual like physics. Like, you have to have an understanding of some physics to actually really do really good in this game. Although this game here... Of... Oh, go ahead. And speaking... Oh, you, you finished your last point. I was going to say, this game also had its own spinoff, and that was called Hamster Ball. Do you think that inspired Super Monkey Ball? Possibly. That requires more searching. The other game yeah. that was fun with this, too, was um, around the time that I used to play with Snake, Rattle, and Roll. Ah, yes. That's one of Rare's passion projects. I love that game. Now, hey, speaking of games that require some understanding of physics, let's mm -hmm. talk about the Frisbee next. Oh my god, I love the Frisbee. I love Frisbee. Now, we should emphasize that we're not necessarily just talking about the copyrighted Frisbee of the Whammo Toy Company, but just generally flying discs as a whole. But yep. There's kind of a Kleenex and Band-Aid effect going on with the flying disc and the Frisbee and that people will pick up any generic flying disc from whatever C or D grade toy company and they'll say, hey, it's a Frisbee. Frisbee has just kind of become iconic. You know, it's just it's the real name for this toy is called the flying disc or a disc. I I used to. Oh, my God. I used to. I. I love Frisbee. I can I can yeet that sucker so far, even now, to the point even Oscar, when he was alive, would be like, yeah, I'm not going for that. You're on your own. <laughs> of course, also Oscar would do that with any toy you threw, where he would just like, yeah, and, and you're going to go get it now? Because I'm going to go sleep. <laughs> oh, I miss my little polter pup. But interestingly enough, the Frisbee also kind of gave way to something else it was actually the flying frisbee the flying disc did help give ufos their name oh flying saucers yeah i'm sorry i had to go there as that was kind of part of me so walter frederick morris and his wife lucille were having fun tossing a popcorn can lid after thanksgiving day dinner in 1937 and they realized that there was actually a market for this uh, when they were offered 25 cents for a cake pan that they were tossing back and forth on a beach near Los Angeles. So they kind of were making they kind of were making their own fun. And then someone offered to pay them for what they were using because it looked so much fun. So they kind of got the wheels turning in their heads. Uh, Morrison actually uh, said back in 2007 that you could buy a cake pan for five cents and if people on the beach were willing to pay a quarter for it well there's a business mm -hmm. so they continued their business until world war ii and then that's when morrison had to serve in the air force and he was taken prisoner 
obviously that was not the end of the Frisbee because he actually, once he got out, he improved on the Frisbee. And he called it Whirl Away, which was named after a famous racehorse. Okay. And they just kind of started producing it and producing it. And then when flying saucers came around, like the UFOs, that's when they changed the name from kind of, you know, the whirly, the whirl away to the flying saucer. And it kind of took off from there. I'm not sure when Whammo bought it. Oh, Whammo bought it in 1957 and gave the name Frisbee. You know, since its popularization, there's been a variety of games you can play with Frisbees. How many of us played Ultimate Frisbee in gym class growing up? Oh, yeah. There's di- disc golf that you can actually play down in Henrietta. Uh, they have a disc uh, in one of the Henrietta parks. They have a disc golf course. We should do that sometime. That would be fun. We could never fr- like we would always play Frisbee football but none of us could ever really figure out Frisbee football because we would sit there and play it. And it was like, okay, you're playing it like football. And then we all would be like, um, yeah. And that's ultimate Frisbee. But we were just like, um, okay, so who's on what team? Cause we can't do shirts and skins because there's some girls out here. Naturally. And speaking of games played with a Frisbee, the game of guts was invented by the Healy brothers in the 1950s and developed at the international Frisbee tournament in Eagle Harbor, Michigan. It's played with two teams of one to five team members standing in parallel lines facing each other across the court and throwing flying discs at members of the opposing team. And mm-hmm. when I saw this, I, my first thought was the aggro crag. Oh my God, yes. Another thing, um, and this was actually something when I first had Oscar, I was looking into doing with him because he just loved to run. Mm-hmm. Catch, not so much, but he loved to run. And that was Disc Dog, which is... When you throw a frisbee and the dog catches it, and there's actually a specialized frisbee for that so it doesn't hurt the dog when they catch it. And I will say this much, in in ways of video games, maybe not so much the frisbee, but some form of disc being thrown has been used a few times in video games as weapons. Yeah, like like in Tron. Mm-hmm. And as a more sports-oriented frisbee experience actually ties into this day in gaming history for today. Ooh, so you got to look in forward the, to that one. And we'll do it right now, actually, since we're on the subject. Okay. In, in 1994, Data East Corporation released on the Neo Geo platform Windjammers, which is Ooh. a game that has actually picked up in popularity in recent years to the point that a sequel was just finally commissioned. Interesting. And I've got that sequel on order for my Nintendo Switch from Limited Run Games. Unfortunately, the pre-order window for that is closed, but hey, you can still get it as a digital download. I'll just go and play over it, play with it on your device. Oh, true, true. True. So that's kind of cool. And I think Frisbee is also in the Wii in the Wii Sports, the resort one, I think. Yep. Is one of the things to play. Hopefully it'll come back in the new uh, Switch Switch Sports title that was just announced in the Direct. Oh, yeah. Because they announced they're going to be supporting that post-launch. Uh, you know, golf isn't included in the initial lineup for that one, but it will be d- downloadable later this year for free. I'm looking forward to that and seeing what they have in that one. Me too. All right, where to next, Kimosabi? Oh, actually, I picked the last few, so why don't you pick the next one? Well, let's start with some, uh, a couple of older toys for some of okay. our older members of the audience. Let's talk about Tinker Toys. Ah, now here, there's a classic building toy. That that also was in the uh, Christmas Story movie. Yes. In fact, these are one of the oldest building toys that aren't just a basic plain old wooden block. Mm-hmm. They were designed in 1914 by Charles H. Pajot, who formed the Tinker Toy Company in Evanston, Illinois, specifically to manufacture them. So he he knew what he was doing right out the gate. Yeah, he was a stonemason. He designed the toy after seeing children play with sticks and empty spools of thread. Like I said, kids can play with anything. So he partnered with Robert Patet and Gordon Tinker, dun dun dun, to market the toy that would allow inspired children to use their imagination. Uh, it did, didn't quite take off, you know, because you could get sticks and spools of thread for cheap but eventually over a million were sold there's a little bit of trivia we just found out about that tube design 
that that we the canister we associate Tinker Toys with, that was initially designed to reduce mailing costs for mail orders. Interesting. Cool. Tinker and, Toys also was like the first Legos, if you think about it. Yeah, and, and of course, more about Legos to in a, in a bit. Another funny thing. Tinker Toys used to be, the copyright used to be held by Hasbro, but the rights have since transferred to the company Basic Fun. <laughs> Hasbro's got to be kicking themselves for that one. Maybe so, a little bit. Just a tiny bit. What's interesting with uh, Pythagorean, with this, it's actually based off of the idea of the Pythagorean theorem, which is the progressive right triangle. However, in displays um, around Chicago, they actually were using the Tinker Toy to create all types of things, including working Ferris wheels, complex machines, including a tic-tac-toe playing computer, which is now in the collection of Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. And in 1998, Cornell University, which is not far from us, made a robot with Tinker Toys. And of course, we'll, we'll talk about its influence after we get past the other building toys. Mm-hmm. Because there's a quartet of them in this class. There is. There is the famous Legos, which I think mm -hmm. we talked about last time. We didn't. We didn't get oh. to any of the building toys, in fact. Oh, okay. Well, Legos was one of them. And honestly, Legos is so big, Legos deserves its own its own podcast. Yeah, Legos but real quick, is such we'll, a huge uh, thing. We'll just say, introduced in 1949... They're basically known as the Dutch crack. <laughs> although, I, as I hear, crack is cheaper. Fair enough. <laughs> and there are a myriad number of themes. There's been video games and board games and movies. And Legos may be the single most pervasive toy not owned by Hasbro. Well, toy brand, rather. Not owned by Hasbro or Mattel. Pretty much. Lego's kind of its own thing. They did have a second line called the Duplos, which was kind of made for younger kids to get them kind of sucked into the Lego. And nothing is worse than stepping on a Lego. Nope. Nothing. Yeah, but like, yeah, we do have a Lego episode coming up in March, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, that's going to be fun. So... In addition to Lego, the other... Now, this was interesting because I used to have friends who would tell me, well, Lego is for the... Lego is for the architect, but actor set was for the engineers. Oh, yes. So the erector set is kind of a metal. So we've had plastic. We've had wood. Now we have metal. And it was originally patented by Alfred Carlton Gilbert and was first sold by his company, Misto Manufacturing Company, out of New Haven, Connecticut, in 1913. I'm actually extremely impressed by how many of the toys that we still play with today were created in the 1910s. Mm -hmm. Which is really cool. Currently, Erector is currently owned by Meccano. The brand kind of was kind of existed kind of under its own umbrella of the AC Gilbert company until 2000 when they actually bought it, when Meccano actually bought it. So the Wikipedia mostly covers that classical era when it was owned by the AC Gilbert company. And looking at some of these early erector sets, yeah, I can understand why you, why people who played with this eventually became engineers. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. This is intense. Seriously. Gears and what looks like an engine. Yeah, like you could build an, like, obviously you could see some of the more modern components where they're plastic now, but like in the old ones, like that's, that's metal. And considering mm -hmm. during World War II, like steel and metal were like at a premium. Oh my goodness. So AC Gilbert kind of died in 1961, and unfortunately, uh, the company started to go down the hill with him, filing for bankruptcy about six years after he died. The product was redesigned. They added some plastic parts to it, um, but the clunky-looking model still had a hard time competing with what was already on the market. Eventually, it got redesigned again and was kind of made more kind of steamlined and a little bit slicker. And that kind of brought it back into the forefront. 
Interestingly enough, uh, A.C. Gilbert's life was turned into a movie. Yep, The Man Who Saved Christmas. Because he actually appealed to the Council of National Events to reject um, a proposal to ban toys um, in favor of making war-related material back in World War One, So he, he kind of fought to allow toys to still be made. Now, erector sets have also been used to for real-life prototypes of things that would be done in real life. There's two I want to focus on. Mm-hmm. In 1949... An erector set was used to build the precursor to the modern artificial heart by William Sewell and Dr. William Glenn of the Yale School of Medicine. Ooh. And in the late 1990s, this this one's for Dan and, and everyone else who's a big Disney fanatic. Engineer <laughs> Mark Sumner used Erector to create a working model for Soren, the attraction at Disney's California Adventure in Anaheim and at Walt Disney World's Epcot in Orlando, Florida. Yeah. And Soren's it, a great ride. Oh my god, I haven't been on that one yet. I haven't been, I actually have not been to Disney in Anaheim, California. I've been to Florida. I have not been to Anaheim and I do kind of want to go to Anaheim to check if, if it you, out. If you can work out the way to go, I will gladly help split the cost with you. I oh. love the Anaheim Park. I, you would have to take me on a on a tour of that because that would yeah. I would have to I would be like, "Okay, where do we go first? Like, I love Epcot. As a child, I liked MGM Grand in Florida, and then I fell in love with Epcot as an adult just because it was so many different countries and cultures to see. And But I, I've heard so many good things about Disney in California, and I'd really love to go there. Of course, the last I time I was there, the new movie was Princess and the Frog. So that's been a bit. That's not a bad movie, though. Oh, it's a great movie. Yeah. All right, so let's that see. That leads with the Lincoln Logs for the building toys. Ha, <laughs> Lincoln Logs. Oh, my goodness. It took me forever to figure out how to do Lincoln Logs. And I'm being dead honest. It mm. took a while. Could you on it? Can you tell that I am not? <laughs> I am not mechanically inclined in any way. But here's something interesting. So this was actually made in 1916 by John Lloyd Wright, who was the second son of Frank Lloyd Wright. So kind of very, very interesting. And there's some of his buildings actually around the area up here too. So kind of a pretty famous creator of all of these. Like, I mean, people know who Lloyd Wright is. Mm-hmm. I hope. You that are just dating myself. I don't know. These are the most basic building toy of the bunch that we've been talking about. There's no pegs. There's no holes. There's no uh, clicking things together too much. It's just custom designed logs with little slots in them to make them interlock. Yeah. Originally, the original Lincoln logs were made of real wood. In the 1970s, they kind of tried to revert over to plastic. Pretty sure that there was probably a small outcry, and they went back to wood. And honestly, making them out of wood is more sustainable than making them out of plastic as it is. Indeed. The other thing with Lincoln Logs is, is it did come with direction, hence why I really sucked at them, apparently. So, because uh, they taught you how to make Uncle Tom's Cabin. There's the reference that has not aged well. Nope. Thank God it is no longer in there. But you can make Abraham Lincoln's cabin. True that. But what's interesting, though, is the mold for the toy was based on an architecture of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, which um, was actually designed by Franklin Lloyd Wright. The foundation was designed with interlocking log beams, which made the structure earthquake-proof. It's actually one of the few remaining buildings to stand after the 1923 Great Katanto earthquake which completely crumbled tokyo so it was one of the few buildings that remained standing so he actually when he came back he organized the red square toy company um, under his father's famous symbol and he kind of started marketing toy in 1918 he was issued u.s patent yeah that's too big of a number on august 31st of 1920 for the cabin toy construction he eventually changed the name of the company to lj white Wright manufacturing the toy was a hit following as it did meccano tinker toys and the erector set which was introduced a few years before and here's the cool thing they actually marketed this toy not just to boys like all the previous toys he marketed to girls too well, that's that's forward thinking of him. 
Yeah, he did, it was the, believed to be the first toy marketed to both boys and girls and appealed to the simple type of creativity versus, you know, trying to become engineers. Yes, that was a shade at the Erector set. <laughs> that thing was, I, I looked at it even at now at 42 and being like, yeah, that ain't happening. Right. <laughs> be like, of Here. course, building toys have influenced games in so many ways. I mean, of course, we talked about Minecraft when we d- mm-hmm. talked about the most recent inductees. Oh, yeah, and, Minecraft. And all, all the games that have followed in its wake. It, which is interesting because would just you would look at Lincoln Logs and think because of the simplicity of design that it came before like the Erector set and it came before all the, you know, the Tinker Toy, but it came after. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the precursor to them. Those were the precursor to the Lincoln Logs, but and it's kind of cool that it was created by the son of an actual architect. Absolutely. And designed in a way that it couldn't easily be knocked over. You know, that's why he picked the design that he did with the notches. So I think that basically sums up the building toys. It does. I think the only two we have left is Monopoly and the Viewmaster. All right, let's start with the Viewmaster. It's probably the easier one of the two to talk about. Yeah, this was, as kids, this was one of our first experiences with 3D. Yep, it was also sometimes if you couldn't make it to the to the movies, this is how you got caught up on the latest movies. Yeah, I remember having a set of reels about the Great Muppet Caper. Mm-hmm. But do you know how old it is? It goes back to 1939, according to the article. Mm-hmm. And it was actually four years after the advent of Kodachrome, ladies and gentlemen, um, which There's comes our from- local connection. <laughs> We will always find one. So, interestingly enough, with this, the actually the Viewmaster was not used as we knew it as to literally watch cartoons or things of movies. And you can actually see this at the Eastman House, where they actually will show you some of the very early Viewmasters, and you can actually use them. Mm-hmm. But this was actually used to actually share your travel photos, and it works. Not much different than a slide projector. You put the reel in, you go click, 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 and it allowed you to see places you would not normally see also. So if you were someone who always wanted to see Toronto, can't afford to go to Toronto, but you could avoid a view. You can afford a view, master. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. Uh, Edwin Eugene Mayer, who worked at a pharmacist at an owl drugstore in Portland, Oregon, actually built up a photo finishing business there. And he kind of bought into Sawyer's photo finishing business in 1919 with the help of his dad, his fiance, and his sister. And he kind of helped develop kind of this Viewmaster idea. The company first took steps in developing the Viewmaster. After Edwin and Graves met with William Gruber, an organ maker of German origin trained by the Welton Sun and avid photographer living in, in Portland, they developed a device for viewing stereo images, so kind of the more in-depth images, not quite 3D, but almost there. And Gruber had made up a stereo imaging rig out of two Kodak Bantam specials mounted together on a tripod. You actually can play with this thing at the Eastman house. And I have, Mm -hmm. and it's really kind of cool to look at. He designed a machine to mount the tiny pictures of Kodachrome color transparency films into reel made from heavy paper stock. And the special viewer was designed. And the subject matter for Viewmasters goes all over the place. I mean, of course, when Chrissy and I were growing up, it was kids stuff. But back in in the 60s, they had Viewmaster reels of Ronan Martin's laughing. They had it of Star Trek, Lucy, here's Lucy, Doctor Who, but it was only sold in the UK. Yeah, yeah, Doctor Who hadn't crossed over to public broadcasting yet. Yeah, sorry, John, you're not going to find them here. The Family Affair, The Man from Uncle. The Beverly Hillbillies. Even the Flying Nun. Yes. Oh my God. So many things were on the Viewmaster. And then there was the Talking Viewmaster, which included audio technology with the reels. So you could sit there, you can click, and it would actually talk. There was actually like, I guess there was like something coded in it. So it would say whatever, like it would talk to you. I didn't have one of those. So the Viewmaster 
kind of then became to kind of up its sophistication a little bit. It entered into the video foray by starting the Viewmaster video and teaming up with Warner Brother Records on a new live-action educational video series produced by Kid Songs. Do you remember Kid Songs? Not really. So Kid Songs was a TV show about a bunch of kids who broke into an old, looked like an old TV studio and started their own kind of MTV, but of Kid Songs, like John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith, Put Me in Coach, all those songs. And it was the story of these kids who were friends who created the studio. They had a camera person. They had someone working the main video center. They had the actors, the singers, and they had like little skits outside of the different videos they would play. It was an interesting show. So how do we connect Viewmaster to gaming? Well, we have to go all the way up to 2015 in its history when Mattel announced a collaboration with Google to produce a new version of Viewmaster called the Viewmaster Virtual Reality Viewer, based on virtual reality using smartphone applications. Mm-hmm. It was an implement, and it actually was an implementation of the Google Cardboard VR platform, which had an accompanying mobile app to kind of start to build up kind of what you would see. The content is displayed on a smart screen, a smartphone screen, and the phone itself is actually inserted into the back of the unit. So instead of being inserted directly into the Viewmaster, the reels would be scanned using an automated augmented reality interface to ex- to access the content from the reel and play it out in front of you. And if anyone's ever had a 3DS, you know what augmented reality looks like. Mm-hmm. Or played Pokemon Go. Oh yeah, that's another version. And that's and actually that was kind of the inspiration for them to kind of go this route with the VR set was of kind of all the mobile apps that were taking off that were using augmented reality. So they were trying to make it even more realistic. However, it was discontinued in 2019. And speaking of 2019, this is the part of the article that scares me the most. Mattel is partnering with MGM to do a feature film based on the Viewmaster. Okay. Yeah. I guess I guess it's official. Hollywood has run out of ideas. Yeah, as if a movie based on Battleship wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly enough, um, some of the reels that have been produced, a few of them actually feature Disneyland. Oh, naturally. And also uh, blockbuster movies such as the E.T., the Poseidon Adventure, and Jurassic Park. Amongst many, many, many others. And also, currently, the U.S. military used the Viewmaster to help train um, its personnel for airship and for airplane and ship identification, as well as training them how to estimate range using them. So, do you think they made, Viewmaster made a Monopoly set? You know what? I wouldn't be surprised if some point in time they do, if not already. There are yeah. so many versions of Monopoly out there. Oh, yeah. We we covered that in our Weird Board Games episode way back when. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Monopoly begins all the way back to Lizzie McGee's Landlord's Game, which she patented in 1904 and self-published back in 1906. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Charles Darrow got a hold of a copy a little while later, and and when he asked about it, getting a set of rules... He eventually went on to distribute the game himself as Monopoly. So interesting enough with the Landlord's game, there was actually two set of rules originally. One that is with taxation and one that is currently based on the current rules we have today. Right. Um, Lizzie Mag- uh, Maggie um, actually was using it to promote the, th- the economic theories of Henry George and particularly his ideas about taxation. So here's another game that started out as an educational game and now has been breaking up families since its creation. Yeah, yeah, we still learn something. We learn who our, our family really are. Woo! Especially how um, competition-wise everybody is. And then, <laughs> or if you really want to go there, team up and go after somebody. That's what we used now, to do when we used to play. We used to go after the computer. Now, we could go on for an hour about Monopoly's history, but let's just cover some fun bits of trivia here. For starters, the trademarks for Monopoly 
may be held by uh, by Hasbro, who picked up all the Parker Brothers stuff. Mm-hmm. But Monopoly's rules itself are now basically public domain, which is which accounts for half of all those weird versions. <laughs> kind of can't stop it. Like Rockstaropoly. I swear, someday I we should that. make an FC3 Monopoly. You know what? There's actually a website that will actually help you do that. Yes. So, I mean, there are so many different versions. and But interestingly enough, Hasbro doesn't have the license for Monopoly anymore. Really? Yeah. Believe it or not, Winning Moves procured the Monopoly license from Hasbro in 1998. So I think they got I think Hasbro got it back though. Um not according to the Wikipedia article. Interestingly Hold enough. On. Hold on. Let's They probably have, but they haven't updated the article then. Oh hold on, I see Winnie Move Games uh Okay, they're a license Winnie Moves is a licensee in association with Hasbro. Okay. That makes sense. I do know that Hasbro has announced in March of 2021 that it plans to update the community chess cards with ones that are more socially aware, inviting fans of the game to actually vote on the new versions. I don't think the voting is still up, but they were actually asking for fan feedback in improving the game, which is kind of cool considering, you know, what Monopoly promotes. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. So I do have to say Monopoly is probably one of the few is one of the few games that it's more fun to play by house rules than by the actual rule book. Yeah, definitely. Uno's the other one. And man, and- did you and when Uno, oh my god, when the official Twitter page of Uno said you couldn't stack cards. Oh my god, did that cause like I didn't realize like how seriously people took Uno. Oh, to be sure. And of course, there's been myriad video game ad- adaptations of Monopoly. I think one of my favorites was on the Xbox 360. Oh, that was the one we used to play, and we used to take on the uh, take on the computer and kick the computer's butt. Yeah, nothing was more fun than taking when we would sit there and we'd all like pretty much pile all our money together just to beat the computer. Because I swear to God, that computer freaking cheated. And to this day, I still cannot find a copy of Edna Krabappoli. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Thank you, Simpsons, for that little one-off joke. You know, the sad thing is, I'm pretty sure somewhere you, someone did make it. <laughs> Maybe. And I'm sure it's on eBay. And no, I'm not looking on eBay for that. No, already... no, let, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Listen, I already have the FBI looking at me just because I was looking up a poisons the other day to how to kill Chris. Yeah, tell us more about that, Chrissy. Or, or are we able to yet? I don't think we're able to yet. Don't worry, I will explain that one at some point. Okay, But I think that wraps up the class of 98 to 99. Yep, that is the class of 1998 to 1999 of the Toy Hall of Fame. That was the biggest class to ever be inducted. Nowadays, we usually keep it to about three. Um, two commercial and one and one non-commercial. I will tell you that they still make a big deal out of the inductees when we do induct, actually officially induct them. Thank you, John Stewart, for that headache. Because he picked on us one year and he had nothing to really show on his show. So all of a sudden we're like, hey, let's put on an actual like skit and show about all this and just give him something to air. And we've been doing it ever since. But he hasn't talked about us since then. I think we should return to the subject in April. And do the tooth class of 99 and 2000? Yeah. I like that plan. Yeah, there's a lot of toys in there where you kind of sit there and you're like, huh? That, that, I forgot about that. It's a very, it's a very, and if anyone happens to come up to Rochester for whatever reason, go check out Strong. It's a lot of fun. Yes. Or even check out the Eastman house and learn about the beginnings of Kodak. George Eastman was a very interesting guy, to say the least. And there's a lot of cool stuff there. So that's all the fun stuff you could do here in Rochester. And on that note, we should probably uh, call it a day. For Christy Harding, I'm James Irish. Thanks for listening to Gaming Street Regulars. And as always, game on. Night, everyone.
be irregulars? Head over to www.patreon.com backslash fc3roc. We're part of the media division of Flower City Comic Con, based in Rochester, New York. We're a nonprofit group. Everything we make off of Patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events, from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests. If you pledge any amount, even a slim dollar, you will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, and if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc dot org and me at j-a-m-e-s at fc3roc dot org at the moment we're still working out most social media matters but we are indeed on facebook at gaming street irregulars chrissy and i are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool and begging i mean asking for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes Yeah, asking. That's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind. So if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want.